Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. In honor of Pride Month and Pride Week in San Francisco, we go back to June 14, 2007, and an interview with Armstead Maupin, author of the Tales of the City series of novels. A new Netflix miniseries, Tales of the City, premiered in early June 2019. My guest is Armstead Maupin, whose latest book is Michael Tolliver Lives. Previous novels include the entire Tales of the City series and The Night Listener, which recently became a film, which we're also going to talk about. The latest book, Michael Tolliver Lives, is and is not part of the Tales of the City series in that it's written from the perspective of one of the characters, Yet at the same time, it involves many of the characters. It's my understanding, Armstead, that the reason you didn't write another Tales of the City book after Sure of You was because you were afraid your character, Mouse, Michael, would be dead from AIDS. Well, you know, people would say that to me, but I still had friends who were surviving, as do many people. And so I never, I mean, I never in my head killed him off. And in a sense, I wanted to come back to him after 18 years to indicate that he was still alive and kicking, you know. So after Sure of You, you're pretty sure you're going to come back to him at some point. I thought I'd put the series to bed. I really did. I thought I was, I'd was. move on to other things, and I was kind of tired of it and ready to do something else, and I did. We had two miniseries, or three miniseries, based on the books and uh, two other novels. There's one called Maybe the Moon that's kind of my orphan child, but uh, really my favorite, I think, of everything I've ever written about a dwarf actress uh, working in Hollywood. I got to realize it was a point after I broke up with my partner about uh, four or five years ago where I realized I now had this life as a bachelor in the Castro and was getting older and it wasn't bad at all. And I wanted to write about it, what it felt to be a middle-aged gay man. And I also knew that I'm not HIV positive, but I knew a lot of people, I know a lot of people who are and who are getting on with their lives and who are now facing the very real issues, the the ordinary issues of mortality, if you will, who thought they wouldn't make it that far. And I thought that was a very interesting thing to explore this time. And I was hesitant about calling it a continuation of Tales of the City because, as you pointed out, it's a first-person work. Uh, It focuses just on this character. But what happened as I started to write it was that one by one, most of the other characters in Tales of the City began to audition for me and say, oh, come on, let me back in, you know. You think about the people that you knew 18 years ago, and it's not necessarily the same set of people at all. In the case of Michael, uh, some of them are. There's Brian Hawkins, who was his business partner at the end, his straight buddy. And I'd always love the relationship between the two of them because it does represent something that's been really terrific in my life, which is very strong, bonded friendships with straight guys. The fact that I'm gay and he's straight makes no difference at all. In fact, it, it allows us to compare notes in a way. In, in a really terrific way. And I wanted to celebrate that again. And there was also uh, Shauna Hawkins, Brian's daughter, Mary Ann's daughter, for those of you who don't know these people, my apologies, a child that was actually born in the Tales of the City series who's now 
23 years old and working as a blogger for a sort of sex-positive site. She writes about sex, much in the way that, say, I believe there's a young woman named Violet Blue that does it uh, for the Chronicle right now, and consequently horrifies both her formerly libertine father and her gay uncle, Michael. You also have him, Michael, finally meeting somebody and in a relationship. Does that parallel your relationship that you were not expecting? Yeah, it does. I always hesitate to admit these things because then people make the immediate leap and say it's autobiographical and everything in the book happened to you. I've always tried to write from the emotional truth of my life. And uh, three years ago, I met this wonderful guy. We we were married in uh, February in Vancouver. Just took a road trip to Canada to do it, since we still can't do it in our country, except in Massachusetts, and I didn't want to be married in Massachusetts. It has been quite easily the most fulfilling relationship of my life. Maybe it took me this long to get it right, or to find the right person, <laughs> or to look for the right things. I don't know. If I'd known, you know, that life would be this good at 63, I would have uh, been a lot more cheerful along the way. Wasn't Christopher Isherwood once told, you will have the great love of your life, and Christopher said, when? And he said, well, he hasn't been born yet or something like that? Yeah, well, it's the end of, uh, as a matter of fact, his book, Christopher and His Kind. He says it himself. He says uh, the love of his life would be waiting for him in America, but it would be no good if he met him now because he'd only be four years old or something (laughs) like that. And interestingly... Chris and Don, Don Bacardi, Chris's surviving partner, who's 73 now, uh, was 30 years younger than Christopher. They showed me how this intergenerational relationship could work. My partner, whose name is Christopher, as irony would have it, is uh, 28 years younger than I am. And I watched those two. They were really my example of a great gay relationship. They were very clearly individuals, but they loved each other and connected with each other in an amazing way. Their art, because Don's an artist and Chris, of course, the writer, sort of complemented each other with that. So it wasn't scary for me to enter into this uh, intergenerational relationship, largely because of the man himself, Christopher. My Christopher is uh, uh, one of the kindest people I've ever met. And And I think that's something I look, I think it's the chief quality I look for in people for any kind of long-term <laughs> friendship or whatever is uh, an effort at kindness. Speaking of Christopher Isherwood, he was he was a mentor to you as a writer or just as a friend? Both, really. He gave me my first serious blurb as a writer, which he volunteered, and compared me to Dickens, which bolstered my <laughs> my my confidence no end. We were both coming out of the closet at roughly the same time. Actually, he preceded me about, by about four years. I mean, he lived an openly gay life, but he was being public about it in 72 when he wrote his biography, uh, uh, autobiography, Kathleen and Frank, about his parents. He was a complete inspiration all the way around. And he was an old man, 75, who lived his life in the present. He was constantly fascinating because he was talking about what was going on exactly that moment, what movies they were seeing. He could talk about anything. Let's talk a little then about those years and the beginnings of Tales of the City. This isn't just an aside because many of the characters from there do appear here. Much as you, Armstead Maupin, have lived your life with your past, so these characters have, and it's part of their past and yours. The origins of Tales of the City began in the Pacific Sun. How did that work? I was actually trying to write a feature story about the fact that heterosexual singles were picking each other up at the Marina Safeway in San Francisco on Wednesday nights at a thing that was unofficially called Social Safeway. 
everybody knew to go to the Safeway on Wednesday night. And so I wanted to write a piece about it for the Pacific Sun. I'd done some feature pieces for them and uh, went down there on a Wednesday night and couldn't find anybody that would talk to me about it. It was obvious that's what was going on, but of course nobody wanted to fess up that they were cruising over the artichokes. So uh, I went home and made up a fictitious woman, Marianne Singleton, and put her into that setting in order to describe it, and uh, then created a gay man named Michael. His his last name wasn't Tolliver at the time, interestingly. Huxtable, I think I called him Michael Huxtable. A man she meets at the Safeway and is charmed by, and then she realizes he's there looking for the man of his dreams. It really struck a nerve. So was he Mouse at that point? Well, he was Michael. He was the same person in my head, but he wasn't called Mouse. It was just one episode. But the editors of The Sun said, why don't you keep writing about them and tell us what they're up to? So I wrote about five episodes of something. It was called The Serial. And uh, Sarah McFadden later took over that title. She did it for the, for the Marin edition of The Pacific Sun and had a huge success with her her Marin County satire under that title. In those early episodes, did Anna Madrigal and 28 Barbara Lane put in an appearance? No. I just followed Michael and Marianne. I think I went to the baths with Michael, and I was sort of really recording local phenomena uh, that interested in me. And it wasn't until later, when I started writing for the Chronicle in 76, that they started to tell me what they were up to. I mean, I pretty soon they were just talking to each other and carrying on somewhat outside of my own control, it seemed. Well, when you started at the Chronicle, they approached you about that then? Well, it's a fascinating thing. Charles McCabe, who, if you remember, was this extremely crusty old essayist for the Chronicle, highly respected by many, who would write about shaving and going down and getting drunk at Gino and Carlo's. And he saw himself uh, as a sort of 19th century essayist, I think, you know. Deeply homophobic man as well, I might add. Uh, but for some reason, he loved my ass, you know. <laughs> he thought I was great. And he was talking about the cereal at a cocktail party, saying this is exactly the thing we need in the Chronicle to liven things up. And uh, someone was present at that party and told me about it. So I wrote him, and he wrote me back and said he was speaking of himself and, uh, I guess, Stan Delaplane and Herb Kane and he said, we're all a bunch of old farts about to fall off the hooks. I've never heard that expression before. And we need somebody who can come on board that's not going to compete with the other columnists, but bring in a younger crowd. And so he spoke to uh, Charlie Tyriot, the man who ran the Chronicle, owned the Chronicle. And uh, to my horror, I was invited to Mr. Tyriot's office and told they'd like me to do it, but they'd like me to do it not on a weekly basis, as I was doing for The Sun, but on a daily basis. And I had to pretend that I was capable of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) And you were surprised, I guess, that it suddenly took off. Yeah, I didn't know it would catch on as fast as it did. I really didn't. I was very nervous about it. I realized I had to keep people entertained every morning. I had to make it short and pithy, and I had to bring them back for more. And it wasn't until after the first year that someone, and I actually took a two-week break, and people thought that it had stopped. Someone at the Chronicle said, I'm not supposed to show you this, but come here. And we went into a room, a storeroom, and there were three industrial-sized garbage cans full of letters from people complaining that Tales of the City wasn't there. During that first year, as you were working on it, were you writing it like a day in advance, two days? How did you do that? Do you remember? Uh, Initially, it was uh, six weeks in advance. Uh, They wanted that so they could 
make sure I wasn't up to any kind of mischief. And Which you might have been. I, well, eventually I was because I, <laughs> I, I ate away at my backlog so dramatically that I was sometimes writing like Wednesday's column on a Monday. Right. Uh, and that was pretty much the rule. You can ask my editors back then. It was frustrating as hell for them because I, I was a really on top of my deadline most of the time. But that did give me a certain leverage because uh, if they decided to censor me, I could say, fine, I'm stopping it gave me some power. Well, and Wikipedia said that the way that Anna Madrigal became a um, a transsexual was because someone wrote you a letter saying that there was an anagram there. Is that true? Well, not exactly. Someone wrote me the letter and they pointed out the anagram. I'd always intended for her to be a transsexual. But the writer amazingly wrote in and said, I know what her secret is, and it's because her name is an anagram. And I you know, started scribbling on paper and thought, it is, I can't believe it. Uh, So I put it in as if I'd always planned it, you know. Were there any other surprises like that that came up? Well, there's a character in the, well, she runs through most of the books named Dorothea Wilson, an Oakland high fashion model, African-American. And I put her in there, frankly, because I was really realizing how relentlessly white the series was. And here I am in this remarkably diverse city, and I'm still bringing my North Carolina instincts with me. And so I thought, well, I've got to make this character convincing. So I could probably write, you know, a woman that moves in the world of fashion because I'd worked at an ad agency and I'd seen that happen. And and so I created Dorothea Wilson. There's an apostrophe in her name between the D and the O. Someone wrote in and said, uh, shame on you. Up until now, all of your characters have rung true, but Dorothea is nothing but a white woman in black skin. Well, I was heartsick and embarrassed and humiliated and finally enlightened because I realized that was a fabulous idea. <laughs> and I, so I made her into a white woman who had darkened her skin in order to get work at a time when they were hiring African-American models and she wasn't getting hired and uh, went from there. It was tough to deal with because, of course, when we finally started filming the thing, we hired an African-American actress to play, Cinda Williams, who had been in uh, Do the Right Thing and was one of Spike Lee's favorite actresses. We hired her to play uh, Dorothea. And I saw her in a magazine the next year saying, well, Armistead didn't invite me back. I don't know why. And I thought, well, Cinda, you got to read the book. She's, she's white the following <laughs> year. You know, sometimes when you get too fantastic with your speculation, you can write yourself in a corner. It was actually did turn out to be some kind of interesting because... What it did was reflect on the notion of her partner, her her girlfriend. Mona was kind of fascinated by the fact that she had, uh, you know, a black girlfriend. Only she did. And she was sort of token, you know, making her a token, a kind of objectifying her in her blackness. So it made for some real comedy when she found out that she wasn't. You know, one of the uh, charming facets of um, those books was how you incorporated real-life events and real-life places, the end-up, for example, which in the film was not the end-up at some other place, but those who knew the end-up would know, oh, and wait a second, it's the wrong end-up. The, the current end-up is not the one that was existed back then. It moved. Really? I've noticed it's on a number of tours where people say, oh, this is the famous <laughs> end-up of the Jockey Shorts Dance Contest. It was the same business, but not the same location. You do a little bit of that in um, Michael Tolliver Lives. Is there an Ishi's Cave? Oh, yes. There is a cave behind my house. I deliberately blurred its location because I didn't want to mess up those pretty woods. I've not seen it, and I kind of like it that way, but I've been told that it's there. I know generally where it is, 
and supposedly Ishii, when he was virtually a living exhibit down at the Anthropology Museum in the 1912 or thereabouts, supposedly he would leave the museum on his day off and go and sit in that cave so he could get back to his, you know, to his origins. He was billed at the time, you know, as the last wild Native American. And the poor bastard had stumbled out of the woods and uh, up in Oroville after his whole family had been, you know, annihilated by either disease or bounty hunters and uh, brought into San Francisco to see a world that he'd never seen at all. 28 Barbary Lane, that's on Russian Hill. You never get any closer to describing. Was there a place where you could look and go, that must be it? Uh, well, McCondry Lane is the chief inspiration. And because we used it for shooting the miniseries, a lot of people just assume that's it. And I'm often, just this morning, I was posing on McCondry Lane for a <laughs> photographer. But there's another place in the book where I described as being sort of where another little alleyway is called Havens on Russian Hill. I lived within a block of both of those places, and I was fascinated by the, the idea of these little urban country roads, really, where traffic did not flow, but the numbers changed and they were official city streets. And it struck me as the very essence of what's so wonderful about San Francisco, that we're a big city, but we're also a number of villages. You write this book, Armstead Mop, and you write this serial. At a certain point, you were still continuing it, but you realized there was a book there. How did the book come out of the serial? A guy named Harvey Ginsburg, who was an editor at... Uh, Harper and Rowe at the time, it's now Harper Collins, wrote me and said, why don't you send me some Xeroxes? I think there might be a book here. So I sent him the first two years worth and he said very wisely, we'll split it down the middle because there's a logical end sort of halfway through. That was actually where I went off and took my break. And that became Tales of the City and more Tales of the City after considerable rewriting by me, I might add. I took all the chapters and put them on the floor of my living room and started rearranging and surprising myself with the connections I could make. If there were a fanatic who wanted to go back and discover, and I'm sure you could through online and other services, the original books, the original two books, what would be the big difference between what exists? Oh, I'd have that person killed, for one thing. (laughs) (laughs) No, seriously. the, The columns were sort of my first draft. Well, there's a huge difference in that there's a murder mystery in the first Tales of the City. There was an actual murder mystery where all of the characters were thrown into into question. You know, is Mrs. Madrigal the murderer, you know? And my editor very wisely said, this will get reviewed as a bad mystery as opposed to a really good social comedy, and you should just take it out. And also individual events uh, within a few weeks of when they had occurred popped up in your book, too. Did those come out, some of them? No, most of them remained. I think maybe one or two. It's hard for me to remember, to tell you the truth, but uh, I try to keep uh, those, you know, those things that nail it to the time as part of the part of the book itself. Did you decide at a certain point, this is enough, and just begin writing the books on their own? What happened to end the serial? The last one that I wrote as a serial was Significant Others, which appeared in The Examiner. Then Sure of You, the sixth one in the series, I actually wrote, did not appear in any newspaper. I right. actually wrote it as a novel, but I figured people would buy it because they had been following the story. And why did you decide to do that? Because enough? I could. I mean, really. I mean, it was grueling work. It was really, really hard to, to keep up that pace. If I'd written the whole thing out, that wouldn't have been an issue. But I was really letting the story grow out of what was happening to me from day to day and what was happening in the world so that when, for instance, Anita Bryant started her anti-gay campaign in 1977, I was able to react to it the following day in the Chronicle in a fictional way through a character who, by the wildest coincidence, I had already established as the son of Florida orange growers. 
So it was uh, kind of zany how the the connections were were all there and waiting to happen. And of course, Michael and Michael Tolliver lives the new book is still dealing with that family. His mother's eighty five years old, and he's got a he's got a very conservative brother, and he's sort of going straight into the heart of red state America with his much younger partner, waiting to see what's going to happen to his, his mother's on the verge of death, basically. The film versions. Now, I know that PBS got so many complaints that they moved to Showtime. The casting of those, I thought the casting of Laura Linney and Olympia Dukakis were absolutely perfect, dead on. I couldn't agree with you more. And the lovely part about it for me was that both of those people have become seriously close friends in my life. You know, they have become part of my own landscape, and that's that's pretty wonderful. You write a character, and someone comes along and plays it, and then they fill that role kind of in your own life. I mean, Laura is... Uh, well, considerably younger than I am, but maybe 20 years younger than I am, and Olympia is 12 years older. So she's not exactly my mother figure, and Laura and I aren't exactly contemporaries, but we respond to the world in the same way in this kind of, I don't know, kind of giggly best friend thing. When she was nominated for Best Actress for You Can Count on Me in 2000, she called me up one night and said, what are you doing on March something or other? And I said, I don't know. And she said, you want to go to the Oscars? <laughs> she was she was not seeing anybody seriously at the time. And I was her date for the Oscars. We sat in the front row and, uh, you know, with Russell Crowe and Anthony Hopkins and the world. And yet we were able to be kind of, I don't know, childlike about it. You know, it was, we were just sort of laughing and having a good time. There were two Monas, two Mouses, and I think two Bryans over the years. What happened? <laughs> the actors didn't want to do it or... Uh, well, things happen, you know, between you, – you have to have the timing right for all of those actors. So sometimes they're not available. I don't, I don't never go into any of those details because I, I do think of them all as part of my family in some way. So I don't, I don't talk about it. Not that we didn't make the effort to bring everybody back. You know, we it, did. But it just didn't but happen. But I think we were very lucky in the, in the actors we found to play the role subsequently. Will there be any more Tales of the City? I rather doubt it at this point because uh, I wrote, actually wrote the script for Baby Cakes, which would be the next one coming up, uh, and I was really proud of it. I did it as a f sort of feature-length movie for TV. Showtime decided it wasn't going to be making any more original movies and was going to concentrate on series, which turned out to be a wise thing because they've kind of re revived the, the network in a big way with things like Weeds. But there was just simply no place to, to air it. PBS wouldn't go back to it because they'd have to admit what wussies they were the first time around, and it would be too embarrassing. Let's talk about Maybe the Moon for a second. Uh, this, you said, is your favorite novel. Why? Yeah. Well, it was inspired by a friend of mine who lived in the East Bay, actually, a woman named Tammy Detro, who was, at one point, officially the shortest woman in the world. She was in the Guinness Book of World Records. And she was this brave, funny, spunky, hilarious woman girl, really, when I met her, she was 19. And she called me up one day and said, I'm running away to Hollywood and I want your blessing. And I immediately sort of shuddered for her thinking, oh my God, what's she going to have to put up with there? But she called me rather excitedly after she'd been there for a while doing a number of odd jobs that to say that uh, Steven Spielberg wanted her to be in a film. She couldn't tell me anything about what it was. And uh, it wasn't until the movie came out that I actually realized that she had worn the suit e. for E.T. Wow. This is fascinating to me in a number of ways. First of all, to know that E.T. is a girl. <laughs> There's a scene, you know, remember when he's in the closet and they have him dressed up in drag? Right, yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, that's, that's Tammy. The main scene she's in is in the last scene where, she, where they required walking. She walks up the gangplank in, into the spaceship as E.T. is leaving, which is, you know, such a 
weepy moment. And it's even more weepy for me because I can recognize Tammy's gait. You know, I can see oh, that's how she walks. And she died in uh, 90, I guess it was, when I had already told her that I was going to write this book about her life or her experience in Hollywood. And I was fascinated by the notion of someone who wanted only to be herself, to, to let the inside be, be seen on the outside, and, but who's always required to wear a rubber suit or a costume or something because the fact that she's a dwarf is not acceptable to the world. It's only lately that that taboo has been broken, uh, and mostly in little independent films like The Station Agent. And her experience was so, what I, th- I saw it as so parallel to my own experience and the, the experience of actors in Hollywood who have to hide being gay, for instance, in order to work. It's written in a diary form. I think I really accomplished something with her voice. She becomes a very clear, real personality for people. And I think the story is really powerful. In something like that, uh, are you afraid of getting too close to the original material? Does that scare you at all? No, because I didn't. I mean, okay. I, I usually t- I take a setup, basically. I say, okay, what if Tammy were doing this? And what if she had a roommate like this? And my work is fictional. All of my work is fictional. Sure. I, I just just draw on the emotions of my own experience. Well, I think uh, in the early Tales of the City books, Michael Mouse was probably less Armstead Maupin than he would be in Michael Tolliver Lives because so much of your own world with your own Chris is similar to, to Ben. So is it sort of like, okay, now what would I do if I were uh, going to visit my mother who was dying in Well, Florida? as it happened, I took Chris to meet my dying father. Okay. So it sort of sprang off of that, although the situation wasn't the same thing. I went to visit Chris's family um, one Christmas, and his father's a year younger than I am. And we're in, uh, you know, we're in Ripley, Tennessee, it was a really interesting time. I mean, I they they ended up welcoming us with open arms, and I, it really bears out the theory I've had all along that if you present yourself with confidence and you, if you do not present yourself with shame, other people will not receive you that way, no matter how barbaric they may be technically <laughs> in terms of, you know, voting right. for a president that wants to keep gay people from expressing their love for each other. Did you have any trouble when you went back finding Michael's voice to write the book? None whatsoever. It just was right there? Yeah. Part of it helped. It helped that I, well, I don't want to get specific here, again, as to who's in the book, but some of the actors that played the characters have now become so identified in my mind with the character that I almost can set them up as if I'm writing the scene for them. I felt that way in all of the scenes involving Anna Madrigal. I just kept seeing Olympia Dukakis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Laura Linney, yeah, but she's just not really that much in the book. Yeah. But, but in terms of Olympia Dukakis, that was her. Yeah, yeah. Well, she can't, She just stepped into it, and she was that person. She was maybe more that person than I even imagined her to be, And by which I mean Mrs. Madrigal is uh, transgendered, and a lot of actresses, especially 15 years ago, might have simply said, well, she's a woman, and I'm a woman, and I just play her as a woman. Olympia wanted to know what it was like for a, a transgendered person, so she hired a transsexual consultant, really? a woman that had actually advised Vanessa Redgrave when she was doing the Renee Richards story, and you know, asked her questions. You know, why did you do it? I mean, this is an arduous, difficult process. You, you, you know, you're going to get funny looks from the rest of the world. Why do you do it? You know, and this woman told her something that uh, that I thought was so lovely that I actually built into the script of the miniseries. She said, "I wanted the friendship of women." 
a man who had become a woman because he, she wanted a, a more intimate connection to women and felt she could only do that as a woman. And that's very touching to me and interesting, so we just built it in. But that wouldn't have happened if Olympia hadn't been so thoroughly dedicated to the notion of playing that character as a transsexual. And then there's uh, your book, The Night Listener, which became a film about this boy who turns out not to exist and a writer's obsession with him. I, I read a couple of interviews that you had about that in which you had a similar experience with a kid named Tony. You were not obsessed, but you saw the obsession of another right, writer. Well, I talked to him for a long time. Yeah. I mean, the first after the first six months, I was suspecting something. Right. So I was sort of not fully believing, but still not willing to, to let it go because I, I didn't know how to do it. People who manipulate these things are very crafty because they operate on sympathy and the sense of delicacy that people naturally feel to feel around some child who's supposedly been through a life of severe, you know, sexual and emotional abuse. There's a lot of tiptoeing around that that makes it easier for the scam to be pulled. Well, when you heard about the J.T. Leroy scam, I mean, that's almost not quite parallel, but there oh, is almost identical. I mean, it's just Except amazing. Except for the fact that the creator of J.T. Leroy decided to get her sister-in-law to impersonate him in public, which was, I understand, a rather bad impersonation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I remember seeing a photo and going, wait a second, <laughs> that's, that's a woman. woman. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a transgender person. That's not a, you know, that's a woman. As a matter of fact, she started trying to make the argument that Leroy was transgendered. But, you know, I didn't really have it put to bed for me until 2020, dug in and did a serious investigation of Anthony Godby Johnson, the person I was talking to, and uh, uncovered first the fact that using recordings of both the supposed adoptive mother and the kid, they identified, the voice analyst said, this is the same person. And then just this last uh, winter, the guy who was in the picture that was sent to me, the picture, the, these people always grope you in by sending you a picture and saying, here's the pitiful child you're talking right. to. The kid in the picture, who's now 27 years old, just found out that this had happened. And that he was the picture. Yeah, and so 2020 went to his home and talked to his parents, who were understandably uh, indignant since his life had been portrayed as one of abuse. And it was unmistakable that he was the kid. I mean, he he's one of those people that at 27, looks like the eight-year-old version of himself. Where did she get the picture? She was his kindergarten teacher. And that's how they found it. It's funny. They handed him the picture of the woman and said, do you know this woman? He says, oh, sure. That's, you know, that's Miss Fragonal. She was she was the kindergarten teacher. And the movie, uh, you had uh, you worked on the screenplay of the film? I did. I worked on the screenplay and was one of the producers as well. How do you feel it came out? I think it's a very good little movie. I, I wish there's a million things I wish were in it and that I'd fought harder for, but I think it's a very creepy, um, atmospheric little film and certainly worth a rent. The performances by Robin Williams and, and Tony Collette are really psychologically so interesting. It was a fascinating experience for me. I actually like be, the movie process more than writing because it's collaborative and there you know it's fun. You go sit on the set and you have a whole life that spins out for you and you arrive somewhere in the middle of nowhere and they've set up an entire set that somehow captures what you imagined a scene to look like. It's very flattering to a writer to have this, to have that experience of feeling everything go three-dimensional. At the same time, a lot of writers complain because they see their works mangled. Yeah, well, I mean, you could do that. I suppose I could do that sometimes on some issues, but I think I've been pretty lucky by and large. 
And I was in on the process, you know, anything that's wrong with a movie, I can hold myself responsible for too, because I didn't fight hard enough for one thing or another. I wonder if it has to do with the fact that you were so lucky and you had to be lucky if it was going to work on the original Tales of the City. I had my best experience the first time out. No question about that. It was a miracle. I mean, the talent that came together uh, was extraordinary. And we had Channel 4, the British network. They treat writers with huge respect in Britain when it comes to televising their works. And you could practically sit there and watch the miniseries and turn the pages of the novel. Now that you've written Michael Tolliver Lives and you've taken us through uh, his life with Ben, do you ever see yourself going back to any of these characters? Oh, I've just contracted to write another book. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I'm... It's not going to get out of my system anytime soon. You know, the the intervening novels all had minor characters in them that were from Tales of the City. I've never left this universe ever in, in 30 years. Well, Night Listener... Night Listener, Anna who is the bookkeeper to the Robin Williams character in the film, who's played by Sandra Oh in the film. Anna is the daughter of Dee Dee Halcyon Day and Dorothea Wilson, one of the two twins born to Dee Dee in Tales of the City. And it's only mentioned in passing in the novel, but, you know, people reading it really shrewdly figured it out. Michael's uh, former partner at the nursery, Ned Lockwood, who had an affair with Rock Hudson and invited Ro- Michael to visit rock at the house in LA we know that he's died you find out that he's died in maybe the moon so there's a there there are connecting characters in all of them I never leave the universe I change the point of view from time to time but I, I never leave the universe and I don't know whether the next book will be third person or first person oh so you haven't even gotten a combination that far. of no so you just know at that point that Michael will yeah be in my it. editor said what's it going to be about and I said you kidding I haven't got a clue those old habits of the newspaper where I didn't know what well, was happening the next day. Well, we do know we knew, we do know most of the characters who will be there, or some of them. Some of them will be there, yeah. Yeah. Now, Michael Tolliver lives the name. Does that refer back to everybody going, Mouse couldn't be alive? Yeah. Yeah, the first chapter, he meets mm-hmm. a guy down at the grocery store in the Castro, and the guy says, I thought you were dead, you know? I have my, Mouse saying it, but it's true of me, too. I refer to them as these odd little supermarket resurrections where you suddenly see someone who looks familiar and you think, you know, I took him home 15 years ago. <laughs> or did he take me home? I don't remember, but I think I know this guy. You were uh, you were on an episode of Frasier. How did that come about? Well, it happened because we were nominated for an Emmy. Tales of the City was nominated for an Emmy, and we sat next to the whole Frasier group. Well, we met, and then they invited me to a screening of Frasier, and then they wrote me and said, we'd really like it if you'd be one of the callers on Frasier. So I was one of those voices that Frasier speaks to on his shrink radio show in uh, in Seattle. And I might add, I still get residuals, 30 bucks or something like that a like year. Like once a year? Yeah. You made comments about the East Coast gay writers versus West Coast gay writers, where West Coast gay writers seem more political to you. Do you think that's still the case? Uh, no, I think it's pretty much evened out. But I think back in the 70s, that was true, or 70s and 80s. Paul Manette was really kicking ass by the time he came down with AIDS and was writing about it from L.A. And I think the whole issue of being out and being an activist and all of that is, at least it was more central to my life than I felt that it was to a lot of East Coast writers. And it's not something I want to stress because I think we've all made our contributions in our own way, but I just didn't relate to a lot of the writing that was all about, oh, the decadence of Fire Island and, right. oh, the pain of never having the great beauty you want to have and all of that. To me, it was more about the heart and less about the crotch. 
I don't know. It's a funny thing to say, but I think when you're really operating from the position of this is about who you're right to who you love, you become even more of a political person. And I think that's what fired up my political side. There were some terrific – I mean people like Vito Russo was writing sure. in a very political way about film back in those times. And there were a lot of journalists who were doing the same thing. But not people like Andrew Holleran. You know, I don't want to name I mean, he was, he was, I, he's a good writer. I've interviewed yeah, him. Yeah. yeah, he's a wonderful writer. He just wrote a book, as a matter of fact, about an aging gay man and the great heartbreak of this character. And I can only presume, if I may, that it's something that's autobiographical for him, is that he never told his, – his mother died, his aged mother died, and he never told her ever that he was gay. Andrew Holleran wrote under a pseudonym writes under a pseudonym. And he, in a very touching way in that book, it's an extraordinary book, acknowledges that he basically robbed her of something, of knowing who he was, of being his true self with her. The book is called Grief, and that ultimately is what the grief comes from. And that's a very, you know, painful yet wise observation to, to make about not being right. open with your family. Michael Tolliver Lives takes place in the year 2002. Five, I believe. And the series started in, in 78, and you yeah. and I were both hanging out in the Castro back then. What do you think the changes are in the gay community in terms of how people view themselves and also in the literary community about how people view writing like this? There's a, there's a fairly explicit gay sexual scene, and for you and me, it Several. doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, actually. <laughs> but for those people out there, maybe it does Oh, matter. you know what? I, the, I've got the so far on the advanced thing, I've had the best response from women on it. They're curious as hell as to what two guys do in bed with each other. Really curious about it. If they like the guys, they can handle it. I can't generalize about the. I mean, the world's changed enormously, really. It's changed enormously. My fight all along has been to not be ghettoized, to not be told that I'm writing for some little niche market that requires a shelf in the back of the bookstore and nobody else should be interested. Because I've known from the very beginning that the entire population of the Bay Area was interested and a lot of people who identified themselves as heterosexual would write me. One woman wrote and said when Michael's life was threatened well before AIDS, he came down with this sort of mysterious disease called Guillain-Barre. A woman wrote me and said, I am nothing but a middle-aged housewife from Moraga with two little machos of my own. But if you kill Michael Mouse, I will never subscribe to the Chronicle again. And I felt so great because I realized that I had conveyed his humanity to her. And she just saw him as another person, someone she could love and she cared about. And that's been my goal from the beginning. And so I hope that's what I'll do with Michael Tolliver Lives. Show them what it's like for, for gay men who've lived with what they thought was a death sentence for many years and then have gradually found their way towards living. I mean, that's the emphasis. Michael Tolliver lives. I called the book Michael Tolliver for the longest time, and then one day it just dawned on me that I should add that extra word because it's really what the, what the book is about. A new Tales of the City miniseries is now airing on Netflix, and a documentary, The Untold Tales of Armstead Maupin, can also be found on Netflix. His memoir, Logical Family, was published in 2017. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. 
Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.